a city in crisis, a man, a shovel, a dream. We're digging into our fair city today and playing one of executive producer Jeffrey Gardner's favorite episodes. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. For five years, from 2011 to the present, I have been involved with Our Fair City, a post-apocalyptic audio drama podcast produced in my hometown of Chicago, and it's a production near and dear to my heart. I served as a writer, actor, and producer on that show. And now, far removed as I am from Chicago, I serve as producer emeritus, occasionally getting to peek in on production. If you're unfamiliar with the show, this episode is probably going to be a lot all at once, so let me back up. Our Fair City takes place in a future racked by climate change, in a frozen tundra that used to be called New England. All that remains of the city of Hartford, Connecticut, is a single insurance company tower belonging to the Heartlife Corporation. Over hundreds of years, Heartlife became the only governing body in the region, and the citizens of Hartford all slowly became policies of Heartlife. Heartlife's rule is very nearly total, and life under the regime is excruciating. Resources are scarce, and human life is cheap. Renegade scientists and genetically engineered mole people band together to resist the edicts of the terrible board of directors. The most precious resource in Heartlife is power both political and electrical. With the fossil fuels of the past exhausted, putrescible waste collectors must burn garbage and waste for energy, and lightning riggers must pull electricity from the sky itself. When the lightning rigs go dark, though, the city enters a power crisis, and only one team, surrounding one legendary putrescible waste collector, can stop it. I really recommend you seek it out. This episode we're going to play contains major spoilers for the first four seasons of OFC. Why am I playing it, you ask? Well, the episode I'm going to play has been out since 2013, so I I feel like the statute of limitations on spoilers has expired. Also, I asked executive producer Jeffrey Gardner to pick his favorite episode. So, I've given you enough warning. If you like what you hear, you can always go back and listen from the beginning. Check it out at ourfaircity.com. Without any further ado... Let me present Our Fair City, Season 4, Episode 19, Neil Henderson. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by the company you depend upon for all of your greatest needs, Heart Life. These stories are true dramatizations from Our Fair City's glorious history. So listen and remember, Heart Life, all the life you'll ever need. Policies, we are all of us, only human. However, there are members of our community who are somehow more human than human. It seems almost as though there is more matter, more weight to the form and actions of these supermen. One such hero is Neil Henderson. 
now the sharpshooter, a man who shoveled the waste of five men, holds the entire city on his muscled shoulders. All of our hope depends on this single life being carefully strapped into a giant mechanical digging suit. And the blue safety line goes into the red receiver here. And the indigo power valve goes into this chartreuse junction here. And this yellow thing uh, uh, is left over, I guess. All right, Mr. Henderson, you're all strapped in. All that's left is to turn you on. Are we sure that this metal getup is going to work? It's an exoskeleton, and it should. According to Dr. Morrow, it was originally designed to dig the tunnels, but was never actually produced because the actuary said it wasn't cost-effective. Yeah, well, digging ain't shoveling. That's why the Super Scooper has giant shovel hands instead of giant drill hands. Uh, Super Scooper? That's what I call it. There we go. Okay, try to move. fell in the poo. Sorry about that. It's okay. Yes, Dr. West, everything's set. Dr. West wants to know why you're not answering your headset. What headset? The one, uh, oh, oh, uh, this headset. Uh, here, let me just. Mr. Henderson, do you read me? Neil, are you there? Do you copy? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Splendid. How are you? Rested, limber, ready to make scientific history. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. Oh, don't be. The success of this reactor may well end the power crisis, reverse the food shortage, and save the lives of every man, woman, and mole in the city. But in science, failure is always a viable outcome, and there is only the teeniest chance of a catastrophic explosion. Oh, did that not go through? I said, the success of this reactor. West, Oops. I told you not to touch anything without checking with me first. That includes the radio. Sincerest apologies, Emily. It won't happen again. Go check the calibration of the laser array. Yes, Emily. Mr. Henderson. Are you there? How are you feeling? Uh, fine. Say, what did he mean, catastrophic explosion? Good, good. And how is the Mark I Exo Enhancement Extractor Module? The what? The Super Scooper? Oh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, the Scooper Duper's working fine. Well, I'm glad that the Mark One Exo Enhancement Extractor Module is functioning optimally. Look, I, I still don't see why me and Betsy can't just go We've and... We've been over this, Mr. Henderson. The Mark One Exo Enhancement Extractor Module will increase your overall load capacity by a factor of 20. Well, if we got a couple of the other fellas from down in... No! The- The other PWCs are in the lower fields maintaining the power to the rest of the city. Taking just one of them off the line could cost hundreds of lives. I won't do it. Thank you, Vice President. Your nobility inspires us all. Now run along and leave the science to the scientists. This is all very thought out. You have the Mark I Exo Enhancement Extractor Module. The upper fields serve the more robust and fiber-filled diets of the tower. We even moved up Spice Night to guarantee your fuel supply. Nothing has been left to chance.
Well, I better go. I've got to help the switcher monitor the power relay. If you need me, I'll be six levels down on the other end of your chute. Good luck, Mr. Henderson. Hey, uh, Andrew, was it? Uh, yeah. Good luck, Squidge. Thanks. Fusion reactor. You may begin, Mr. Henderson. Dropping the first load now. Catalyzation. We are underway. For 11 hours, Neil Henderson toils mightily. The mechanical marvel to which he is moored becomes a blur of steel and sludge. The metal limbs fly, controlled by the practiced hands of our hero, a man with no limitations. The machine, however, is no hero. Uh, Dr. Caligari? Super Spooper stopped working. Well, I don't know. There was a sparky thing by my head, and now I can't move. Damn it. We'll just have to stop the reactor until we can get the Super... The Mark One Exo Enhancement Extractor Module working again. Stopping's not gonna set off that explosion, is it? What explosion? Well, that creepy guy said something about an explosion. West? Yes, Emily? Why is the cowboy talking about an explosion? Yes, well, I may have confided in him the ever-so-slight chance that an inability to produce enough energy on our part may result in an instability that could lead to a thermonuclear event. Slight chance? There is no chance of that. I ran the calculations myself. Yes, you did. Before. Before what? Well, you did say we needed to lower the initial energy cost of the reactor. Yes, but I... I believe your exact words were... Do whatever it takes, Wes. I did say that. How slight is this threat of detonation? Ah, hardly one at all. I'd say one chance in three. One in three? There's a one in three chance that shutting down the reactor will destroy the city? Ah, and a 66% chance that it won't. I say we shut it down. The odds are with us. Henderson. I need you to get out of the module and carry on manually. We have to keep going. Yeah, I'm kind of strapped in is all. Press the eject button. Which one is that? The yellow button to the right of your head. A yellow button? Like like the one that was left over when I got plugged in? Left over. Of course it was. Hold on. Power distribution operator. Operator, do you copy? Switcher here. I need you to send Snidge up to assist Mr. Henderson ASAP. Uh, Andrew and I are a little busy here, ma'am. Someone's removed all the buffers from the power couplings and it's from a, a, a leak. Uh, electrical arcs keep setting things on fire. Oh, uh, stop, drop, and roll, Andrew. Stop, drop, and roll! Damn it. Henderson, I'll... West will be there in 15 minutes. Oh, no need. I'm out. No, I, I just sort of... Busted my way out. Busted out of steel and titanium reinforcement cables? Uh, yeah. My exo-extraction module. Sorry? 
Never mind, just get back to work. All right, Betsy. Looks like it's up to you and me. Let's do this the way we were meant to. Once again, Neil Henderson shovels as he was born to. Who could have guessed that what we flush away can be all that stands between civilization and annihilation? How odd that all of our hopes and dreams and lives depend upon that most ignominious of bodily byproducts and its most adept caretaker. That maestro of manure, that doge of dung, that prince of poopy. Six straight hours he works without break or rest. Six straight hours he labors for the good of the city. Something has to give. To all things there is a limit. No. No, Betsy. Mr. Henderson, the power levels have plateaued at 98%. Is something wrong? Betsy... It's Betsy. She's... She's gone. Who's Betsy? A shovel. A shovel. A shovel? Henderson, did your shovel break? Betsy, I'm sorry. I'll take that as a yes. We'll, we'll get you a new one. Power distrib... Switcher? Switcher, come uh, in. Andrew's sort of maintaining the power flow circuit with his body. Did you need something? Never mind. West, go and make sure he doesn't die. On my way. Henderson, head down to the lower field and ask around for a shovel. But I can't just abandon Betsy. She... Out of the way. Uh, who the hell are you? Neil Henderson, you get off your ass and save me this instant. A- Allison? I did not let you lead me across an unsurvivable frozen wasteland just so I could die because of a heat failure. Or a food riot or, or... A 22 megaton explosion. Is, is that something that could happen? Apparently. Neil, you start shoveling again right now. I, I, I can't do it. I, I'm sorry to let you down. Forget about me. Think of all the people in the city who are counting on you. Think about the sick mole up here whose life you'll be saving again. Hell, think about your stupid little girlfriend and her stupid hair and her stupid dog and her stupid fleas. She gave each one of them a name. That's nice. Get up. But... But, Betsy... It's a shovel, Neil. A tool. And when a tool breaks, you get another tool. You're wrong. Betsy! Betsy was special. Betsy didn't jump from the tower and survive. Betsy didn't climb to the top of Stormhawk from the outside. Betsy didn't brave the frozen wasteland just so her little pet mole could see a vet. You did those things, Neil. You alone. Can't can't everybody? No, you idiot! No one can do any of that! A dozen riggers couldn't keep up with you on the tundra. They're dead because of me! No, Neil. None of us would have made it back here without you. You're special, not your shovel, you. You saved us, and now there's a whole city that needs you to be special. So get up and find a new shovel, because you are Neil Henderson, and you have a job to do. All right. I guess this robot suit doesn't need its shovel arm anymore. But I do. Okay. Okay. Here we go. 
with the arm of the broken mechanical contrivance as his shovel, Neil Henderson once more digs deep, both within himself and the brown sludge. Without the help of his robot suit, without the aid of his eldritch shovel, exhausted and alone he toils and sweats to save the city, for Neil Henderson does not give up. Neil Henderson does not fail. Neil Henderson does not I can't. I... I can't. Allison. I'm sorry. Allison. Dora? Deep as the foundations of heart life, far from the reach of any of the lives he just saved, the body of Neil Henderson sinks into the waste. Another life in our fair city has come to an end. The day is saved. The city slowly turns itself back on as electricity flows from the secret laboratory. Everything returns to the way it should be save for one life lost. In the end, dear policies, it is not so much to lose the life of one man in the course of our heroic society. The balance is maintained by losses and gains every day, and in the end, heart life prevails, keeping the lights on through these times and into the future. Through the designs of our benevolent directors, we shall endure into the next age. The story of our fair city will continue. I had a chat with my friend Jeffrey Gardner, the executive producer of Our Fair City. We talked about the episode you just heard, his interest in myth, the city of Chicago, and forming creative communities. That's all coming up just in a minute. And now, let's take a listen to my conversation with Jeffrey Gardner. Jeffrey, hello! Hey, David! Welcome to Radio Trauma Revival! Thank you! It's good to be, you know, it's... It's It's good to be back. I feel like, yeah, it's... I want to say it's good to be back, but um, it's been a few years and it was under Fred since I was last on, mm -hmm. so I'm really, really excited to be on the kind of new iteration of Radio Drama Revival. Thank you! How are you? Uh, I'm well. You and Betsy just moved into a new condo in Chicago. We did. It's um, congratulations on becoming homeowners. Thank you. Uh, it is an American dream that I never had, um, <laughs> but kind of suddenly conspired to be practical and uh, affordable, and so we made the plunge. Is Chicago 
do you and Betsy think Chicago's like your forever place? Chicago is for, you know, the foreseeable future. I've sure. I've lived a bunch of places. It's it's funny, I, I look back at it every once in a while. Um and uh I've lived all over the place and uh I've loved a lot of places. Um mm-hmm. but I can't really imagine being anywhere but Chicago right now. Why is that? I just love the Midwest. There is an openness and a community feel here. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't want to speak badly about other cities, but, um, you know, I've, I've lived in L.A. for some time. Uh, you know, I've been in and out of New York, uh, San Francisco, a couple other places. And in, in most of the other big cities that I've spent time in, the basic unit of, like, measurement for groups, for people, is the individual. You know, mm-hmm. um, and maybe this is particularly true in the arts, uh, or maybe not. I don't know. Um, but to, to my experience, you know, spending time in San Francisco, spending time in LA, spending time in some of these other places, it's it's you're an individual. Whereas Chicago, and you know, Pittsburgh, where I grew up, is also like this, just about you know a tenth of the size. Um, mm-hmm. Really, the basic building block is the community. It's interesting to hear you talk about how. It's important. I mean, obviously knowing you because you're like a good person, like it makes sense that you would say, I like Chicago because community is important. But in in the context of the the piece that we you chose to for us to play today, it's all about like a heroic individual. Uh, Or do you disagree? Well, uh, you know, actually, I think um, I would say that I chose this piece because it's really at its heart. It's an ensemble piece. Okay. I mean, it's called Neil Henderson. And, you know, as, as we just heard, the, the, the heroic efforts of this person put us over the top. But what I love, a, a thing I love about this piece is that it's all of these disparate people who may not even like each other mm-hmm. working together um, seamlessly or not, to save the city. And so I, I actually, it's it's interesting because while Neil Henderson's story is very much about the kind of singular person uh, working hard to, um, to accomplish great things, mm-hmm. in the end, the restarting of the fusion reactor and the saving of the city is not a solo effort at all. Sure, that's accomplished through collective action. Yeah, yeah. You have someone building a suit that gets you most of the way there, and you have Herbert West, uh, you know, you have Caligari building the suit, and Herbert West um, taking out all the safety buffers so that we can get enough power, and you have the switcher manning the, uh, the, the power station, and you have Andrew, you know, standing in as extra conduit, um, and um, Allison stepping in at the end and providing a different kind of support. Um, and so while while it feels like singular heroic action, I think it's really about um, a bunch of people working together to save the city um, and then the company taking from that a, a figurehead that they need. It's weird that I bought into the company line for for that episode that I that I took a great man reading of history 
from that narrative. I mean, Our Fair City is told from the perspective of the company. Right. And this is a thing that is crafted, hopefully, to make you see the company's way and to to buy in to to what they think here. I remember the the argument, the the series of arguments that we had in the writers' room over whether or not to kill Neil Henderson. Um, but we ultimately decided to to go with it because um, for a couple of reasons, uh, but because of his mythic import. I think what do you do you remember those conversations? You know, I don't, but I'd be happy to have them all over again. <laughs> so I remember thinking um, it would be I hated having this idea. And I'm not sure if it was only my idea. I think it might have been a Jim idea, too. Jim is the person Jim McDonnell ultimately wrote the script um, to give Neil Henderson a John Henry death. Uh, it seemed like the only the only way out for Neil because he just he had grown too big and too immense and mythic and powerful. Sure, and and you can't have a really mythic character that doesn't go away, disappear, die in some way, I think. Right. You know, you could have ones that I I guess there are, there are certain types of mythic figures that persist, but this this type of um superhuman, you know, they they we have to see them die. Uh, or we have to see them fall in some way to... Why is that? Well, I mean, uh, to a certain degree, are they... Do they just get boring? Hmm. You know, I mean, the the, the the easy one is Superman. And I will admit to not having read much of Superman or really many DC comics. But, you know, the I feel like the common complaint about Superman is that he can do anything. He's He's untouchable. Uh, really until you exert this one weakness and so you just have people you know showing up with kryptonite uh and you know foe's getting bigger and bigger but he's still always okay and uh, you know i know the character is much more complex with neil henderson first off um having this be a problem that cost neil had uh having this be a problem that cost neil henderson his life really ups the stakes on the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it seem huge by comparison. Um, or in, in context, I guess. I feel like um, you also, you, you don't want a character like that kind of hanging around because, you know, then we could just solve any problem that came up. If, you know, going forward a little bit um, during the ant crisis, um, if Neil Henderson had been around, like, what would be stopping him from just taking care of all the ants? You know, that would be... Can't everybody? Yeah, and that would be very much within the, even if not realistic, in the scope of the character that we created. Okay, so what attracts you to myth? Because I feel like for as long as I've known you, and for much longer than that, you've you've been attracted to epic stories. Boy... Uh, you know, I had a um, a copy of uh, what is it, Dalder? Um, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the it's the gold. It's the uh, yellow uh, oversized mm-hmm. book with the Dolaires? beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was talking about that just today. Beautiful, beautiful. Were those like colored pencil illustrations? Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, and I had a copy of the children's Homer. Okay. that I read very, very young. Um, but you know the um, 
really the first stories that I was told and the first stories I read uh, were Tolkien. Um, when my sister was born and I was four, uh, my parents gave me a copy of The Hobbit. Okay. And I think we read it every year until I could read. And then I read it every year. Um, and fairly, you know, fairly soon after that, my father read Lord of the Rings to me. Um, and I read The Silmarillion um, in whole or in part a number of times growing up, probably way younger than, you know, I was... I. I was too young to understand it uh, or to really get anything out of it the first time, but uh, I persevered and, you know, read page after page. I don't know. I, I've always loved... It's it's a form of escapism. Okay. And, and while, you know, Greek myth may not be a pleasant form of escapism, it's, it's a chance to inhabit a life that is larger. It has this mythic weight. I mean, that's that's what we call it, right? I I tend to go back and forth in the in the theater, especially that I like between very very small, tight, you know, two to three person kitchen sink dramas, um, and then massive, you know, forty person cast with pyrotechnics um, retellings of the myths. Um, I just love both. Can we do a quick retelling of the origin story of Our Fair City and how you met Clayton and all the original crew when you were all working at the Museum of Science and Industry? Sure. So um, a bunch of us uh, met while we were British wizards for the Harry Potter exhibition um, at the Museum of Science and Industry. Uh, We were all... Chicago actors and book lovers and science lovers who could fake a British accent or, you know, for one of two of us came by British accents, uh, naturally. Uh, we were all people who could fake a British accent well enough to fool Warner Brothers. <laughs> and uh, we spent a... Do you still have it? You know, not really. It's pretty rusty. Okay. Um, it's, you know, it, Clayton will tell you, uh, my British accent really devolved over the summer because we were doing... You know, six months, 40-hour weeks in this um, massive exhibition filled with props and stuff and just, you know, both doing, you know, big stage shows and interpersonal interactions in these accents. Um, As uh, the summer wore on and as I grew more tired during the day, I kind of would migrate from London up north and further and further north. No, but it was it was uh it was a lot of fun, but also if you cram 30 or 40 actors and improvisers and writers and geeks together in a small space and then kind of have them do the same thing day after day after day, the break room conversations breed all kinds of interesting product uh projects. Sure. Um, and, and this was something that Clayton had originally come up with when he was at Tulane. Right? Yeah, yeah. The the core of the idea was Clayton's uh, back in school. And we should say, sorry, we're talking about head writer Clayton Fates. Yes. And uh, and then he brought it to a group that actually did not include me. It included mm-hmm. um, Jim McDaniel, 
and a fair number of other people. Um, and Ansel Birch and and Frank, right? Frank, uh, and and so that team uh, met a bunch and developed a series of hour-long episodes that were originally going to be performed live with illustrations by uh, Eric Irvine, who mm-hmm. was at that point working as a security guard, uh, is now in charge of the graphics and images for The Onion. So um, Here's a fun little Easter egg. Uh, you can find Jeffrey and Clayton and Mark Soloff and Lauren Fates in any number of photo illustrations on The Onion. Yeah, there is actually a, a large percentage of the Our Fair City cast and crew shows up in The Onion at least once. What is your favorite one that you've appeared in that is most flattering to you? Uh, so, you know, I've actually only been in one, and it was not flattering oh, at all. I was trying to give you the out. I was trying to uh, give you that out. <laughs> no, but I am incredibly proud of it. Uh, I... <laughs> I believe my headline was um, man's contest with burrito enters thrilling, you know, third hour or something like that. (laughs) And it's me uh, in a, in a burrito place with this massive burrito just falling all over my hands and it's all over my face. Uh, And I had been sitting there for, you know, 45 minutes with Eric, just taking, you know, slow bites and smearing it on my face and dripping it on the table and just slowly consuming this burrito, um, and it was it was a while before I could eat burritos again. I gotta say, <laughs> no, no. So we we came up with this idea, um, or that rather, they came up with the idea to do live shows in bars or in theater spaces uh, where actors would read the lines, and these illustrations would be projected behind them to kind of uh, create the space. Um, and then we were going to, they were going to record them, uh, and put sound effects with them. And, uh, I came on actually to help book bars and to help with, um, the kind of management. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually my original role. Um, I was just going to kind of occasionally assist with some production related stuff. And we pretty quickly came to the conclusion that what we were trying to do was two different productions. You know, we were trying to do a um, recorded audio drama and a live show at the same time. And that that was twice the work. And what we really should do was just do one of them and do one of them really well. Uh, And so we focused in on just doing the recorded audio drama. And it kind of didn't go anywhere for a while. And, you know, I think we wrote some stuff and we recorded a little bit and it sat. Um, And maybe a few months later, Clayton and I sat down and said, hey, listen, like this, uh, this has been stalled for a bit. Do you want to, do you want to really make this a thing? Do you want to really give this a give a run at this? Mm -hmm. Um, And we had, you know, six or seven more beers at the local bar, uh, the local museum bar, which is called The Cove, mm-hmm. and which is, as we've said, um, kind of loosely what Al's bar is based on. Um, and we said, yeah, let's, let's make this happen. And so we shortened it down to the kind of 10-minute episode length and did a bunch of rewriting and uh, Frankensteined a bunch of stuff that we had already had 
into the first season, the what we call the classic season one now. And, you know, uh, very little of that stuff was wasted. Um, Caligari uh, showed up, uh, was in a very different form when we originally imagined uh, the production, uh, but came back in a big way, and we're really happy about that. In the past couple of years, you've been doing a lot of sound editing for the show, editing a lot of the roughs and doing sound editing and Foley work in other pieces. Um, how has that affected the way you direct? Oh, interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm actually not sure it has. And okay. that's, that's maybe a boring answer, but let me, let me give you a little more grist. Um, I actually was a sound designer before I was a director. Oh, that's true. Um, I'm sorry. No, I, I no, should no. have remembered. In so in uh, you said in an interview with Wildclaw in 2013. Uh, I have it on my sheet. Even your first your first piece was when you were 16. Can you tell me about the <laughs> cask of Amontillado? <laughs> yes. Oh gosh. Uh, so for the the um, every year at my high school, um, kids in the program I was in had to do a big project of some kind, a paper or an artistic creation, and we had to track like 30 hours of work on it. And it was this wow. um, this big thing that you were kind of supposed to work on all year and really you just worked on in the last month of school and kind of busted it out. Uh, and sure. one year I decided to make a... Um, make a book on tape. And so I took the Edgar Allan Poe story, Cask of Amontillado, which is just such a wonderful story. So creepy. Mm -hmm. And I took the tape recorder in uh, my mother's um, living room and hooked up a mic to it and very creepily told the story of the cask of Amontillado into the tape. And I, you know, did it a few times because I didn't have what any, was the, what was the voice? What was your spooky voice? Uh, you know, it was, I think it was somewhere between like deep baritone and, you know, poets voice. And okay. <laughs> I was walking down the hall. The hall was, you know, it, it was, you know, 16 year olds uh, version of like, very serious Edgar Allan Poe voice. Jeffrey, I must have that tape. I, I should, I, you know, I, I think I still have it. I just found, as, as I was moving, a box of old tapes that contain not only, hopefully that, but also all of the karaoke recordings that um, uh, our friends did in middle school. So You, you know, are you can... sitting on a literal gold mine. Oh, yeah. No, um, so, sorry, I don't, I don't want to take away from the, the punchline of the story. What happened with the recorder? No, so, um, so I recorded and I have to do it a few times because I didn't have any editing software, obviously. Uh, it's on tape and I didn't know enough about cutting tape and you can't do that with a cassette anyway. Um, so what I didn't realize is that I was recording, this thing was recording in stereo and I don't know how this happened. Like, the technology doesn't make sense, but somehow I was recording in stereo, but the mic, I think, was 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 pulling a mono feed, and so it decided to pull the other feed from 
the DVD player that was also hooked up to this big sound system. Mm -hmm. Um, And the DVD player had some, like, mid-90s romantic comedy DVD in it. And so, under a big portion of my very serious and creepy reading of the cask of Amontillado was these, like, sproing, <laughs> like, sound effects and, and you know, clown horns and, you know, goofy noises. And it didn't start until, like, part of the way in. And it was, uh, it was bizarre and so under under 16 year old jeffrey very very seriously talking about walling you know his friend into the you know the the wine cellar suddenly you're hearing you know comical springs and uh and clown horns so that was my first um uh kind of sideways run at audio drama and then kind of never mm-hmm. really thought about it but i fell into sound design in college um at kenyon college uh, mm-hmm. where i did my undergrad um and really i was kind of just looking for a place to be useful um and one of the seniors one of the upperclassmen was saying, hey, like, I do most of the sound design for the shows and for the, you know, the dance concerts. Um, I'm going to be leaving soon. Um, Do you want to take that over? And so he trained uh, me on everything he knew. And uh, I kind of did that for a while. And then slowly, I guess my... Late in my sophomore, early my junior year, drifted into directing and still did some sound design through the rest of college, but uh, started passing that off to kind of the next generation. Uh, And then by the time I got to Chicago, I was pretty much just directing, and I, I never really investigated doing sound design here in the city, um until I fell in with these audio drama people and then sure. uh, it became useful again. Um, in an interview you did with Podcake on Tumblr, uh, you've described working with actors you've known for a long time versus actors you've just met as being like working with freshly sharpened pencils rather than crayons. Can you elaborate on what that means? <laughs> sure. So, you know, it's a weird um being a director is a weird art form. Um, I, I'm a facilitator. Um, mm-hmm. My art is, is kind of helping other people do their art or guiding other people in their art um, or, um, you know, wrangling, put, pointing a bunch of artists in one direction and then filtering what comes out so that it becomes a cohesive piece. Um, But you develop a language and you develop an understanding with actors as you work with them more and more. And, you know, for each actor it's different. And for some it happens faster or, um, you know, sometimes it takes a long time. Um, But you 
you develop a shared language and you develop an understanding of of how to get the moment that you want out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people require a lot of coaching. Some people, you can just say, hey, can you give me that line again? Um, and if you say it in the right way, they'll give you what you want. It's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Um, and, but, but so uh, in, in the first time you work with a new actor, I feel like it's a, it's a learning process for both of you. Um, and and you're not you're gonna get things that are not exactly what you thought or um, are are you know a little different and 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 often that's wonderful but um, you know there there's there's a beauty to the precision of creating with a cast that you've worked with forever. So okay, so let's say I'm a first time audio dramatist. I'm listening to this interview. Mm-hmm. What are some like concrete, practical steps that I can take? Let's say I don't have hardly any budget at all. Let's say I've got you know uh, maybe enough money to pay like an honorarium to the actors and not much more after that. Like how how can I? What concrete steps can I take to make sure that my production runs smoothly from a morale standpoint and from a logistic standpoint sure so uh one of the most important things that i would say is being respectful of people's time you know Mm -hmm. we work really hard um to schedule people's time as efficiently as possible whenever possible to to not um uh you know to not um call them for things that they don't need to be at. There are, there are directors um, who believe, and, and if this is their process, that's fine, but who will say everyone needs to be at every rehearsal, even if you're not in that scene, if you're not doing anything Interesting. for um, and, and, you know, I work, and, and the Heart Life team works very hard to, to really maximize the use of people's time and not call them for unnecessary time, because all of our time is very precious. One of the last things that I did with you in Chicago was participated in the construction of the Heartlife Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, now officially creating like a place for the company to rehearse, mm-hmm. not just in people's apartments, not just in folks' living rooms. How has having this company space affected the way the show feels to make? I mean, it's an enormously positive change. Um, there, it's there are advantages to being able to make art out of your own home, um, mm-hmm. notably cost. But there is a work-life separation that we're able to have um, that I think makes the art so much better. Because we are able to go away from our homes, go to this space that is just for working, or is just for doing hard life stuff, and buckle down and do the work and be really focused on it. This is more of uh, probably an issue for Clayton and myself. Um, Recordings were in a back office at Clayton's house, and rehearsals for live shows were at my house. Um, Right. But I found that during, say, for the rehearsal, rehearsal processes for live shows, the rehearsal 
was difficult to get into sometimes. It was hard to switch gears, but it was very hard to switch gears back. Once that had gotten coded as a workspace, during, during that process, it was hard to relax at home. So even after everyone had gone, it was still difficult for you to see your apartment as anything other than a rehearsal space? Yeah, sometimes. Well, and especially later in the process as, you know, we're setting up mics and we've got a Foley table set up that we're leaving out and sure. like that. But it's, it's, it's nice to, to have that divide. And I think it's really healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, audio drama, you know, is a labor of love for almost all of us. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it means that we're doing it in our spare time. And, you know, uh, I have found, you know, I have moved now to having a, you know, a computer that I play games on and a laptop that I edit on. And I only edit on that laptop. Um, And that just that divide, you know, having space where I work and time where I work, because otherwise you you can lose your whole life to it. We've been talking a lot about about the struggles you've been having with depression, if you're comfortable talking about that. Yeah, sure, sure. How how has that been affecting the way you feel about art? Like, how has that been affecting your art practice? How are how you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, it's, you okay. know, it's, it is an ongoing struggle. Um, sure. And it's a thing, uh, and I think it's, it's a good thing to talk about. I'm still on the hustle and I'm, I'm still clawing my way up to the top uh, or sure. whatever that means as an artist, you know, and we can unpack that later, but it's, you know, this is, this is an important thing to talk about. Um, I, you know, um, I have found uh, through a combination of uh, therapy, which I just recommend for everyone. It's just the best thing. Um, I, and you know, like you don't need a reason. It's it's just good to go and talk sometimes. But you know, for my particular cocktail of um, depression and very intense anxiety, um, I have found that um, when I'm able to kind of keep it under control with medication and with therapy, it uh, I make I make such so my art is so much better. I'm able yeah. to function. Um, and I, you know, I know that I absolutely fell prey to that weird thing, that weird thought that like I would lose my ability to make art if, if I got my depression under control. Oh, interesting. And that, that I would lose something essential about being an artist, about how, you know, how what? to make art. And like the idea that art is motivated by suffering? Yeah, by suffering, by mental illness. And that's just, I don't know. Um, I have not found that to be true for me. Uh, <laughs> sure. Good. My, my, my art just gets so much better when I'm in one of these, uh, one of these good places. Um, and, you know, art is a tool that I use to get there. Nights, gosh, fall nights coming home from a great recording session. There's just nothing, nothing better. You know, being able to, you know, bike ride through the city and feel the fresh air, a little chill in the wind, and know that, you know, you just spent a few hours with some of your favorite artists and created something that has a chance to be beautiful. Oh, you gotta stop. You're making me so goddamn homesick. <laughs> 
Um, like, if you had thrown in, and then I make myself a pot of mulled cider, I would have just thrown up and started crying right there. <laughs> oh, you son of a bitch. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you're at liberty to say anything about the next big thing. Um, so... Because, you know, we're in, we're in season eight for Our Fear City. You're about to start production on that in another couple months. Uh, and then after that, Hard Life's still going to be around, so what are you going to make? Yeah. So we will be launching a um, a new serial, which I'm really excited about, um, and uh, we'll have a slightly new team on that. Um, Jim McDaniel is going to be our uh, new story director. He'll be kind of at the head of the writing team, um, and uh, I will be heading up the production. Uh, and, uh, you know... I'm really not at liberty to say much about the story, um, okay. but that's mostly due to how we want to make it. You know, I really want to play around with mysteries and with, um, you know, taking the five senses art that Heart Life does. You know, we we have a podcast, but we also have comics and we have live shows and we have themed food at our parties and immersive design. And I want to see how far I can stretch that around the podcast. See, you know, what other experiences we can put out and create um, to accompany the podcast. Um, okay. I, uh, you know, I love stories about the Midwest and I think there are kind of not enough of them. But I also, I, I don't want to go and say, you know, this is going to be a story about three people in a truck driving, you know, to Minnesota, because mm -hmm. I, I'm really excited to see what our writing team and what our sound team and what, uh, what our community um, is interested in making. And how that bounces around. Um, I often, I don't know, I, I often think of myself not so much as a creator, uh, as a facilitator, and as a filterer. Um, I don't expect to have, you know, even 10% of the ideas that make it into the final version of the show. And I, I really hope that I really hope that nothing, you know, that when we launch the next big thing, it's not recognizably something that I would have made. Jeffrey, it was so good to talk to you. Yeah, really amazing. I mean, I talk to you all the time. Like, we talk all the time. But I haven't heard your voice in a while, and that yeah. was nice. No, it's, it's, there's, there's something different about it. Yeah. And I miss your face, and I'm uh, looking forward to having you back in the city sometime. I miss you! Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I I am always thrilled to be on Radio Drama Revival. It's uh I and I've loved um I've loved the interviews you've been doing, so I'm really uh really excited to have a chance to do one. Thank you. Come on back anytime. All right. Thank you again for that conversation, Jeffrey. Keep on making sound art. You'll always have a home on Radio Drama Revival. Well, policies and policets, I'm afraid we are out of time, but never fear. There's more exciting things coming down the pipeline for RDR. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review in iTunes. 
It really helps make the show more visible and to spread the radio drama revival gospel. And now, the credits. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find him on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreau, who served on the lightning rig Ice Moon and once squeezed a thunderhead so hard it shot out enough juice to power the city for a fortnight. Our second line producer, Eli McElveen, traded me the key to a secret stash of corn in exchange for my ration card. When I put the key in the lock and opened the door, I found corn all right, hard as a rock and half as nutritious. Eli neglected to tell me the corn was 200 years old. Thanks, Eli. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, who work in the actuarial department and shout arcane numbers at their underling, who is me. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch, who has been on the board of directors since the company's founding. All praise to director Fred. All praise to director Fred. Get out while you still can. All praise to director Fred. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and I'm telling you stories. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs>